Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is John Keeley and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 504. Our guest today is Kevin Hazard, journalist and author who will be taking the time to talk to us about his book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. The history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Ed, uh, you get to start us off this time. Thanks, John. Um, Kevin, you spoke er earlier in the show uh, that the first group of paramedics, um, that uh, they were just ordinary people. Um, the point, and the point was so that more people could could be trained as um, emergency responders, if you will, and, and there was a nine-month training period. Can you tell us, uh, from your experience or your general knowledge, um, what's the tra- what are the training requirements today? So there's a couple different levels. You know, at, at the time that these guys were going through their training, it, you have to remember the word EMT did not exist, the word paramedic did not exist. So, you, you know, they weren't, they, <laughs> they were just trying to invent something. Um, now we have all these different designations. And so you have an EMT basic, which is someone who is trained to do CPR and to bandage and things like that. It's sort of the entry level. That is a, depending on where you go, you can do a course like that in probably about three months. And then the next one is an EMT advanced. And that is where you begin to get a certain number of drugs. So um, an oral glucose to help someone who's got high blood, or excuse me, low blood sugar, they can give aspirin to someone who's having heart attack. They start IVs. There are certain type of airway devices that they can put in and they can use an automated external defibrillator. So that is probably about about nine months of training and they learn you know, a, a really a full spectrum of medical emergencies from delivering babies to treating hemorrhages, um, how to spot the signs of a, of a stroke or a seizure you know, quite a, quite a broad range of emergencies. And then the final is the paramedic, which is on top of those two things, depending on where you go, about a year and a half to two years. And this is where you learn to lead, to read 12 lead EKGs, which is, you know, a much more complicated version of cardiology. Um, you use a defibrillator to shock on your own, not with an automated defibrillator. You can give narcotics, so you can treat seizures, you can treat pain, um, they have a full spectrum of cardiac drugs that you give, um, drugs that you can give to lower blood pressure, to raise blood pressure, drugs you can give in the case of um, obstetrics emergencies. This is really um, plus a, a more advanced version of an of a invasive airway, which is putting a tube down someone's trachea. So it's a really, which, you know, the the paramedics are the only people who do who do that other than respiratory therapists or, or doctors. So, you know, a paramedic is really a very well-trained person to arrive at, you know, at your side um, for pretty much anything that could, could be going wrong. Terry. Yes. Kevin, can you tell me, how did you get interested in this topic of America's first paramedics? And was there anything surprising that you discovered during your research? I got interested because my, I, I wrote a book after having been a paramedic and someone who read it sent me an email and said, Hey, I read your book, you know, which was a memoir of, of my decade as a medic. 
and they said, I read your book. Um, but do you know how it began? Have you ever heard of, of this thing called Freedom House? And I, I had not. And so I started looking into it and I kept thinking at any moment, I'm going to, I'm going to flip through Google. and I'm going to find the definitive New Yorker piece on, on what happened. And I never did. I just found little bits and pieces, which was, you know, for, for a reporter, probably the worst thing you can get because it's just enough to make you curious and just enough to make it so you can't walk away because none of my questions were answered. I knew that, that these guys were the first medics. I knew that they were all black. I knew that they were shut down. And I knew that they helped bridge the gap between the arrival of, or, or between, you know, hearses delivering care and full-fledged paramedics. I didn't know how it happened or why it happened. And so that was the beginning of, of you know, <laughs> about two years worth of research. I think some of the most surprising things were how little the world has changed. I was writing this book um, during, you know, in 2020. So it was in the, in the wake of, of George Floyd and I was watching, you know, watching what was happening on TV and then going back and reading you know, all the stuff that was going on in the 60s and, you know, Pittsburgh, people assume because it's a northern city that perhaps it didn't have quite so tumultuous a racial history, but it, but that wasn't true. And so to see it in the 60s on paper and then to see it live today on television, um, you know, it was it was it was a frustrating it was a frustrating thing to see. Um, let us talk again about some of the men who were the ones to become the first paramedics. Of course, you have these group of men, um, but they also have other lives that are occurring when they get pulled into this uh, first-time occupation. Um, when they had the classes, were they during the day? Were they at night? Did other individuals have jobs on the side? Um, how were the families involved? Because um, most, if not all, revolutionary directions, people tend to be doing other things before it occurs. So um, could you give us some of the scenarios of, besides the gentleman you were talking about earlier, of how these men were able to juggle this new learning and yet live their lives? Yeah, you know, and the, the fact that they had to do that really shows the leap of faith that they were taking. You know, you had guys that were fresh back from Vietnam and uncertain what to do with themselves. Um, you had guys who were working in very unfulfilling jobs who were looking for something better. Um, and you had guys who were unemployed and had no idea what they were going to do. So, you know, they were, they came from, you know, a fairly wide range. And yet when they listened to this sales pitch, which, I mean, if you think about it for a second, somebody's saying, Hey, I want, to, I want you to put your life on hold to take this nine month training course for a job that technically doesn't exist. And we're only going to pay you a few dollars a week to do it. That is not really a great pitch. But yet they were able to get these people to sign up. And I think it's because, and if you talk to them, they recognized that in the back of an ambulance, they could find a way that that would be their chance to prove to the world what they were worth and to show that all the people who counted them out were wrong. And I think there's perhaps no more telling example of that than the fact that it was such a hard course and it went five days, sometimes seven, mostly days, but also nights. They could not work. They had to quit their jobs. So these were, some of these men had kids. They had families they needed to support and had to walk away from their lives in order to do this. And that is a level of commitment that you don't undertake unless you're convinced that you're doing something special. Okay. Ed, 
Yeah. Um, during the pandemic, uh, we saw a tremendous rate of burnout and overwork amongst uh, nurses, uh, along with everybody else in the medical profession. And um, we're seeing a, a real uh, serious shortage of nurses in this country now. Did that spill over into the EMTs as well? Yeah. Emergency medicine in general you know, is a, is a tough field. I, I think I read somewhere that the doctors have the highest burnout rate of any occupation in the U.S., and ER doctors have the highest burnout rate of doctors. So emergency medicine has always been very difficult. It certainly is difficult on the nurses who have been overworked. Paramedics, you know, find themselves in the exact same situation. They are, in the best of times, there are there's simply not enough of them to cover, you know, a city or a town adequately. And then if you add to that sudden influx of patients and people leaving the job, the people who are left behind holding on, trying to, you know, hold down the fort really struggled. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them have, have, (laughs) have had some issues um, that have resulted for that. And, and we, I don't know that it, people have really begun to, to truly unpack that because, Uh, You know, many medics are still kind of in the midst of this flux of things going up and down and, you know, retention being down and call volumes being up. So I don't know that many of them have had the chance yet to truly address the mental health issues that have arisen over the last three years. Terry. Yes. Uh, Kevin, you mentioned some of the difficulties that paramedics have faced. Um, were there any unique difficulties with the first paramedics that they faced in performing their duties? Yeah, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a few stories, some funny, some less so. Um, John Moon, who's one of the first, one of the, one of the guys, and um, uh, George McCary, who was his partner, told the story of they were called out to a man who um, was found unconscious in his house and his brother had called. And, you know, what people were used to at that time was for the police to race out, to pick you up, to throw you on a stretcher, to run you back to their ambulance and immediately speed away. So the public expectation was speed. And they walked in, they found a man unconscious on the floor and immediately dropped their equipment and began assessing him to try to figure out what had caused him to go unconscious and see what they could treat. Well, you know, this something like that is, you know, that, that's not speed. That is, you know, an intellectual approach to a problem, which of course takes time. And so the brother walked into the room and he sees several minutes have gone by and he sees these guys still crouching on the floor. He sees his brother still here in the house and not at the hospital. And he, you know, immediately starts screaming, what are you guys doing? I didn't call you here to, to play around. I called you to take my brother to the hospital. If he dies, I'm going to kill you both. And George and John kind of looked at each other and they didn't say anything, but the look in their eyes was, are you ready? I think we're ready. And they grabbed their equipment and they ran out the door, you know, and that was not necessarily completely uncommon because people had no idea what to expect of a paramedic walking through the door. You know, they had some other issues in which they had, you know, they had trouble convincing white patients to, to allow them to treat them because sometimes people did not necessarily want them touching them. So, you know, there were, a lot of barriers that I don't know that people face today. We would like to thank our noted guests for the 504th show, Kevin Hazard, journalist and author, who talked to us about his book, American Sirens, the incredible story of the black men who became America's first paramedics. 
the History Bus for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.